Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The bear market is officially here. We're in the throes of a full-blown pandemic. Everything is getting canceled, and the economy is grinding to a standstill. They're already calling it the panic of 2020. What better time than now to talk to one of the country's top-ranked financial advisors, someone who proved her mettle in the last panic? Stay tuned. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. We podcast on Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Joining me in studio after another stomach-churning day in the markets. It's been a a record, epic, brutal week. Uh, Dalal Solomon and John Harper of Solomon & Ludwin, uh, the highly ranked financial advisory by Barron's, Forbes, the FT, I mean, everywhere it's lauded, uh, with about a billion under management. Solomon & Ludwin was founded in the teeth of the great panic of 2008 and 2009. Seems like ancient history now, but we have that that, uh, weightless feeling once again. Yes, we really do. Well, first, how are you? You know, we're hanging in there. I I think the the uh, the worry is part financial and the worry is part health. And you know, we have a fair amount of elderly clients, and you know, our concern is really about uh, not only their ability to withstand the market turmoil, but their ability to stay healthy and stay out of harm's way. For sure. Well, I would say you can go ahead and exhale after a long day in the markets, but we're not even allowed to exhale anymore. Right. So That's true. It is one of these, you know, on parallel tracks, you could talk about this as a, a, a pandemic. You could talk about this, it seems like ancient history again, with what the Saudis did. It's an energy and it's an oil crisis, an oil shock of its sorts, a financial crisis with the Fed throwing hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity. And you get that feeling of kind of pushing on a string. The Dow falls 10% in one day. It falls 8% another day. It's up 7% another day. Net, net, we have the first uh, bear market since 2011. And we've you know got past that hurdle of a correction. I think this is one of the fastest times so, in history we went from a record high. In 19 days, we've gone from an all-time high to now a bear market. And that's the fastest, even beating out the Great Depression and we, we also hit an all-time low in interest rates, yes. right? Yeah, it's breaking under half a percent right now. We're starting to see everything at one point earlier this week. Everything was under 1% on the curve. Um, just seems like we haven't seen levels like this at any point. And the Fed, I think, in, introduced uh, $4 trillion today in additional easing. I mean, and then the, to talk about all these other headlines, I said, yes, you know, this week there was one point when the president, Donald Trump, was making an emergency address about coronavirus. You had out of nowhere Tom Hanks and his wife announced that they were self-quarantining in Australia with the coronavirus, and, and Sarah Palin was revealed on The Masked right. Singer. And then meanwhile, <laughs> the NBA cancels its season, the MLB, I mean, the hits And keep now coming. March Madness is over. And now March Madness. And you yeah. cannot right. model no. for all of these different bang, 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 bang you headlines. Can. You can't. Right, hitting you at once. And it changes your priorities, too. It's like health before wealth. And so right. that's the first thing that is leaving everybody with that gut-wrenching feeling. And now we have both, are the markets working properly? It seems like they are. The economy now, what's going to happen to people that can't go to work? Parents staying home with their kids. I mean, there's so many things that just cascade down. And number one should always be the well-being of your loved ones and yourself. So it has definitely thrown everything up from a number of different angles. Dalal, you started in the early 80s. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so you traversed, I mean, passed the, the death of equities, but 1987, mm-hmm. you saw the, uh, you know, the, the recession of the early 90s, the SNL crisis. You saw the Swine rolling flu. emerging market crises, uh, September 11th, the great financial crisis of 2008. 
uh, Europe, Europe pigs, you know, Portugal, Italy, Greece, mm-hmm. everything else like that in 2011. And we've now had this prolonged period of what they call risk on, where interest rates are really low for a really long period of time. You suddenly have companies like Apple crossing a trillion dollars in market cap, Amazon, um, you know, the financials are out the door again. We were we were wondering one day when would the NASDAQ see 5,000 again after the year 2000? Well, it was darn near 10,000, right? And then suddenly, as you know, your partner says, within 19 days, it all falls apart. It was kind of ephemeral. Yes. And it's uh, been so frustrating as a financial advisor that we've had this unbelievable bull market and We always want to put at the forefront people's risk tolerance and with interest rates so incredibly low for so long and people are looking for yield, for growth, for something. So they've been kind of herded into the stock market, which has been pretty much the only place to go. And all um, normal thoughts about asset allocation and risk tolerance kind of fly by the window. And it's been so frustrating for us because it's one of our mantras is you don't prepare for bad markets during bad markets. You prepare for bad markets during good markets. So it's been it's just been such a challenging environment for investors, but also for advisors. So, you know, we've been saying probably for too long, Something's going to happen. This can't go on forever. We know this. The markets don't go up forever. That's just the way it is. Um, but the and then every test- year it kept going up. It kept right. going up. And it's it's um, it you become the 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 boy that cried wolf at some point. But the fact is, we knew that something was going to cause this, and that we didn't know what it was that was going to cause it. But it's not surprising to us that this has happened. It's surprising that it's from a virus, for sure. But, you know, I think it just – it after the markets plummeted in 2008, nobody could get it out of their mind. And everybody was – people were probably too conservative. Then as it kept going up, kept going up, kept going up, people forgot about risk and thought – it should all, you know, money should be in the markets, the only place where you're going to make it. So, you know, again, we've, our premise has always been that your emotions are not the way to invest in the market. You've got to be, as Warren Buffett would say, you've got to be fearful when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful. And then the the, the corollary on that is the quote from the 18th century banker Baron Rothschild, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. Yep. Sounds mercenary, but much easier said than done. I mean, the peak drawdown 2008, 2009 was about 57% in markets. I had uh, cousins who never call me, calling me crying from the brokerage office saying, I want to liquidate everything. I was like... Hey, look, Kathy, man, you're only 34. You don't right. got to liquid. You know, I had people tapping on my window at the office saying we're going to be eating dog food and cat food. And of course, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, after the NASDAQ and the S&P and all these indices have been up, you know, nice double digits for so many years constantly. And and the fact that things fall apart is largely forgotten. You, in theory, let's say 20 days ago, you, you wish for weeks like this one where you right. could kind of go in and swoop in. Somebody used the metaphor like a great white going into this pod of seals. Like it's so <laughs> meaty. I don't know which one to go after. But it's terrifying it is to terrifying. throw in another metaphor to pull the trigger in an environment like this because the Fed's already at zero. 
We don't know who the whistleblower, the 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 referee is out there who's going to say it's over. You know, COVID-19 coronavirus is over. This is so decidedly exogenous. Yeah, there's so much uncertainty out there. And I think that's the part is we don't know when this ends. And at the as we peak in the fear side of it, it's going to get to the place where we're going to see probably more pain. But I think that's what we need to kind of that final cleansing that's going to get us back to where we have some answers. Because right now we don't really trust or have faith in what the Fed is doing is working. We don't have faith necessarily in what's going on for this virus and how we're going to handle that from a health perspective. So it does leave us with a lot of unknowns, and we need to have some clarity before we can actually take those steps forward. At the most, at the current point, we are so filled with fear that it's hard to actually step up to the plate and bite the bullet. Well, let me put on the Peter Lynch hat for a minute. Do you remember the old ads from Fidelity? What was it in the early 90s? Buy what you know if you see you like something out there. Coca-Cola, my kids drink (laughs) Coca-Cola. And that's not always been a great thing. I mean, you might might love Chipotle. It might be valued at 300 times earnings and have an an E. coli or salmonella scare in front of it. But I'll tell you what, I was out and about today on West Broad Street. Costco was like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. I went to Wegmans, which is not publicly traded, but you could see Kroger, which is right. also mobbed. People are – every bottle, every last bottle of Purell, every Clorox product, every bit of water, toilet paper. I mean think about Kimberly Clark. And then I go into CVS where everybody's lining up to talk to the pharmacy. These companies, CVS, uh, you know, down 11 percent in one day, taken out and shot. Walgreens Boots, down 11 percent, taken out and shot. We know, of course, when everything is failing, you have to sell even the things that – uh, are going to nominally right. remember, be remember, a lot of people are in index funds now. Right. So they're not – when they're selling, they're selling everything. They're but that, selling isn't that, the basket. Is that not a tell of irrationality? Like yeah. you tell me that Clorox – I mean, yeah, it's it's nominally – I don't know how cyclical it is. It's kind of a consumer staple. Mm-hmm. But everybody is obsessing, is fixating over Clorox this week or CVS. And these are companies that pay dividend yields. So when people completely lose sight of – any modicum of rationality in the market or cause and effect, maybe that's an indication of, of capitulation. Right. I think I think we're trying to find what is the real value. I think we're repricing risk so quickly right now. I think it's the panic selling that is getting taken over. But it is at some point you have to step up. And I think there's great value out there. I mean, whether it's those staples, you know, it's the utilities in your backyard that are still going to keep on producing power and electricity for those consumers. I and mean, there's some things that don't change. It's, you know, but we have to find that yeah. Last so what, what, for example, you know, our, our power provider, Dominion, uh, stock is down 10% in a day. Uh, the, the lights kind of metaphorically can go off. This yields 5%, 5.5%. Five right. What does the market do? Especially, uh, th- this is the important thing I want to get at. We saw a complete collapse in interest rates when it was first abundantly clear that this is a global pandemic. People pile into our 10-year and 30-year debt. Um, you see bizarre things happen. Like I thought it was bizarre for the interest rate to go under 1%. For the I first did time. Too. And then it went to 0.37%, right. right? It didn't happen in 9-11. That didn't happen uh, in various other shocks in history, but it happened now. And as a, as a great investor once told me, it's like interest rates, U.S. interest rates are like, um, you know, it's like the sun to the earth. Everything in the earth derives its, its importance, its essence from interest rates. So that gap is now yawning when you have companies you know, double A credit, triple A credit companies yielding seven, eight, nine percent, and interest rates below one percent. Am I? Am I? Is it too soon to be talking about these things, Dalal? You know, I'll leave it for other people to talk about those things. I think what's more important, because we deal more with actual clients and families, and is for people to walk away from this event 
and start to think about the financial decisions they make and how they make them. And when, what I mean by that is if you know that you need money to pay your bills, that money should be a set aside at least three, four, five years of bill paying so that you're never in a position to be forced to sell stocks while they're declining to pay your bills. People should be having really in-depth conversations about their tolerance for risk so that you don't have people selling into a declining market because they didn't realize that they would be that upset when things were down 20, 25, 30%. I think the foundation of the relationship that people that have with their advisors really needs to change. And those are the things that need to be talked about and figured out. So when things like this happen, because this won't be the last time something like this happens, people have to be prepared well in advance. It, it's very hard to make smart decisions in the midst of fear and chaos and all those emotions. So my hope is that out of this, people are going to learn to think differently about asset allocation, about cash flow, about risk management, and make those a priority. It sometimes isn't just about um, the best stock or the best dividend yield. Sometimes it's understanding when do I need money, how do I feel when, when the markets are down, how do I feel when my statements go down, am I going to capitulate and sell into a declining market, do I have money set aside well enough so that I can lay back and know my lifestyle doesn't have to change and I'm not going to do anything that I can't recover from because I've planned ahead. Those are, those are really important things that people need to get their arms around instead of ignoring it and, and thinking that markets are just going to go up forever or conversely go down forever because none of those things are true. Well, John Harper, did diversification work going into this, the old 60-40 model of you always want to have bonds as low as the yield might be as much as the Fed is messing with it because it provides ballast yes. in a portfolio? Yes. I mean, you can see that in this last correction that the bond, the 60-40 mix, it actually has like half or less than half of the drawdown that we've experienced as equity only. Half the loss in a 60-40 portportfolio versus like 100 percent right. of the market. Right. Yeah, so I think that what we would all just mention is that, you know, it's that the prep work is done beforehand. Even going into this when we're at all-time highs, we are still encouraging that kind of diversification and asset allocation. But people weren't pushing back at you guys and saying you're hitting the same thing every year. Why am I in a 40% nil-yielding bond portfolio? Well, not everybody's in a 40%. Everybody's different. Well, let's right. say but, the old rule, the age the age mm -hmm. rule, like per, if you're 60% right. in bonds and so, 40 or, So here's the thing, Robin. We try I'm not rolling my eyes, and no, I'm not no, trying no. to be a young no, no, whippersnapper. No, no. You are a it's young just, whippersnapper. It's just, you know, this is 20 years yes. of, of collapsing interest rates. But it's more than about following any rules. It's about understanding people's cash flow needs. So if I know that you're paying for your daughter's wedding in 2021, oh, don't say that. I'm I, <laughs> I don't want to be raising that money today. I want to have raised that money a couple years ago. While the markets are high, so if you can if you can understand cash flow needs and raise cash on basically sell profits, raise cash and on harvest strength, profits and husband harvest, them, put them away. Exactly, that's smart financial planning, making smart financial. So it's decisions. kind of like you're putting them in escrow. You're not playing for yield. Exactly. So let me just give you an example. The last 
two or three years with many of our clients as markets keep get hitting new highs, new highs, new highs. You run financial plans for people. You know if they've got a wedding coming up, they're purchasing a car, they're taking a big vacation, whatever it is. You say, gee, that's coming up in the next two or three years. Markets are all-time high. Let's take some profits off the table, set that aside. That's your car money. That's your daughter's wedding. That's your family, big family vacation you've been you know, planning for for years. Now, if the markets go down, we don't have to worry. If they keep going up, awesome. We'll keep taking more profits maybe for the coming years. But these are the kinds of things that I think if you – are working closely with somebody that understands these cash flow needs because that's, I mean, that's what it's all about. And um, that in combination with your risk tolerance, I mean, that goes a really long way to getting people through times like this. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Dalal Solomon. She is CEO of Solomon & Ludwin, the uh, highly ranked financial advisory in Henrico, Virginia. She's joined by John Harper. Uh, you are the portfolio strategist? Investment strategist. Investment yes. strategist. You know, uh, you, you both look very young. But I remember <laughs> in the That's early funny, 80s, <laughs> in the early 80s when uh, the late Paul Volcker, the dearly departed Paul yeah. Volcker, was trying to break the back of inflation, my father took me to American Savings and Loan in North Miami Beach and open up a passbook savings account for me. And I remember I got the juicy yield of 12.5%, maybe 14%, and the Hamilton Beach toaster. Mm. Um, how do you go from an environment like that to nil yielding? This is a, this is a mega trend that's been going on for decades now, right? Um, we start the century with, I think, about interest rates close to 6% on the 10-year. Even before the financial crisis, the Fed's main uh, target, you know, the Fed funds rate was, I believe, at five and a quarter percent. Now you're talking about the Fed going to zero again. We are just a few weeks removed from full unemployment and a record high stock market. And I worry, how does a person model for something like this? You always, surely you must be reaching for historic analogs. I mean, the the Spanish flu, the entire planet suffered from this in, you know, the right. late teens, but, you know, and the roaring 20s still happen. Or, um, you know, we used to have metaphorical contagion with the emerging market crises of the but late 90s. But you didn't have 24-hour news and Twitter and all mm. the things that are driving this to full-on panic. Mm. Think about that. You may have had these things, but you weren't sitting in front of the TV all day long hearing about the next person that got it and the schools shutting down. You probably have to wait till Lou Rukeyser Friday nights or... Right. right. Or till you got your newspaper. Right. It's it's just such a different... and It's hard to make those analogies to those things because it's such a different world today. And, you know, emotion does drive a lot of the market. And So when clients call emotional. you and say, what is the neatest analog you have to this? What have you been saying all week? I thought originally it was more like 9-11 and that we were already in a somewhat of a... 9-11 was somewhat different because we had an outside shock that came in there and stopped the market, stopped consumption, had a huge amount of unknown as to what will our world, our society look like post. So I kind of see that as one. Um, after 2001, we had another uh, 40 days or so of continu continued drifting lower um, before finding the bottom and back up in short order after that. So it's been, that was one that I would go with. And I think other than that, I think the severity and the, and the speed of this last one, I think it kind of puts us in a whole different ball game. And, you know, I, I think we're 
an uncharted territory, historical territory, and there's really is no analog. And that's not reason to look for one because I think we're going back and saying every situation is unique and every client is unique. And what we're trying to do is start with the risk questions, start with how do we first asset allocate. And then we've done that since. We've done this at the all-time highs, and now we're actually dealing with that in the best way possible. It's as if there's a hurricane brewing offshore, waiting to come on shore. You've already built your house. You've already boarded up your windows. At this point, it's too late to, to panic. We are in the midst of it. Either hunker down if you are in that case, or you've moved to higher ground. And we hope that this hurricane does a glancing blow. But right now, we're in the middle of it, and well, just to give just to give all our listeners and your clients a taste of the extent of the WTF this week, <laughs> um, there's a headline in the Daily Mail online from Thailand. You're gonna have to see this video. Hundreds of hungry monkeys swarm across a Thai street as quote rival gangs fight over food after tourists who normally feed them bananas stay away because of coronavirus. So there's marauding wow. monkeys are taking over there. Wow. There's a picture making the rounds of Tony Montana from the legendary 1983 film Scarface, Al Pacino's character. Uh, his face has cocaine on it, but he's, uh, he's, he's, he's all over this toilet paper, right? He's hoarding toilet paper. Oh, it's like a toilet right. paper cocaine cowboy. And I've seen similar memes with Purell, the extent of hoarding. We have a doctor friend who... Uh, one of his assistants was 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 hoarding and stealing Purell from the practice. Mm. Certainly kind of uh, hoarding apocalyptic type headlines this week if you do pay right. attention to everything going on. Point in case, look at the stories that you're looking at online. And years ago, I mean, who? Now you're making me feel like no. a whippersnapper. <laughs> I just need some escapism. But you it, know how much Netflix I've been binging I all this imagine. week? I can only imagine. You know, just shutting off the I world. Think, I have this fantasy that I just will get a lot of Coca-Cola and pizza and binge the heck out of my Netflix and shut off the phone and magically some, you know, $500,000 check will fall out of the sky, mm. you know, uh, and I could just shut off the world. But no, you can't because at the same time, all finance aside, we're being told about right. quarantine, you know, Richmond Public Schools being out for a couple of weeks and RICO schools, uh, the children's quarantine, their exam schedules. My Lakers were in first place. What's happened to the mm. NBA season? MLB is being postponed. Are they shutting down Disneyland? It is – I'm sorry to go back to the point, but it is relentless. It is relentless. And if you want to tell people to shut it off and be focused, are, are you kind of part psychotherapist at this point? Like shut it off? We're always part psychotherapist. Do you get a copay for that? No copay. Hmm. We're free. Not really free, but OK. Listen, the um, – all these things that are happening right now, the school closings, the Disneyland closing, the assemblies, concerts, NBA, I mean, these are all good things. This is what's going to help us ba basically slow down the spread so that, our, good from a so that our hospitals don't get yeah, overburdened. But my son is asking me, what about the hot dog vendors? What about the, mm -hmm. uh, the parking attendants? What about – what are you going to do with that? I mean, even if they extend family leave, that's not stimulative. That's just – again, you have to double-track this conversation. You, you want do. you know, coronavirus and COVID-19 to end, but you also want the economy to have a light at the end of the tunnel. You do, but – And that's where we are going to get – we already got the liquidity. You're going to get stimulus. You're going to get something to take care of that, and there's probably going to be at some point when this thing is behind us, you're going to see that snapback rally. Typically happens in all you know bear markets of the past. You suffer the pain and then you have the snapback. So it's going to get better, and those people are going to get the the handouts that they need or the necessary support that they need to actually keep on functioning. But we are going to have a pain in the meantime, and that's 
that's something that's inevitable, but it's a shared pain and hopefully we'll come out of the other side of this a lot stronger. And we will, this will end. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the good news is that it's going to end. But right now we probably have to hunker down and make sure that we get through it. Unlike the 2008 financial crisis, it, it didn't seem like that had an ending. It just kept going on and on and on and on. I think most viruses, I'm not a medical person, but, you know, they do have, it's probably going to get a lot worse and then it's going to peak and then it's going to start to dissipate. And Here's the frustrating thing. We don't have a national board of, you know, economic no. statistics or anybody to officially call that over. You right. know, we saw this with the president's address and it's the horrible. cognitive dissonance among, you know, the WHO and the CDC and yeah. uh, the testimony given to Congress. There isn't a, a chief kind of ref or arbiter, a person to call it on or off. No one with no one approximating the respect or the um, uh, uh, moral suasion or moral guidance, I think, of, of what the, the Fed chief would have when it comes to the economy or the European Central Bank. And I think this is what people have been talking about in the financial press relentlessly. Uh, uh, in that information vacuum, it's all what you're hearing from the governor of New York. Yep, and yep. It's all everybody's opinions and suppositions. And there's no, um, for example, it would be nice if across the entire country there was some guidance on school closures and all these things so that we were everybody was doing the same thing and kind of understood what the rules of the game were. Just now, just seems like everyone's making up their own rules and kind of trying to handle things because we're not getting that guidance from the very highest level. And um, I think that's that's frustrating. And you know, the markets probably can deal with facts a lot better than the not knowing. And that's always been the case. The markets, um, the, they can handle the worst news better than not knowing the next thing that's going to happen. You know what the ultimate indicator is for me that this is over? I have something called the Iranian relative contrarian index. <laughs> when a, a Persian cousin or a great mm-hmm. uncle or distant relative that I didn't even know I had, frankly, huh. would call me up and say, Fazad, your mother gave me your number. Uh, why you are not buying gold? Ah. Uh, that's exactly when you want to get into this. Speaking of which, that's just a messy transitional way for me to talk about gold. Have clients been asking you about true readouts of safety when things become kind of hoardy and apocalyptic and exogenous and pandemic pandemonium? What does gold represent in the grand scheme of things? That's not part of our asset. I mean, no. it's not part of our, there's either the risk assets or the risk not assets. And I think that it, it becomes a lot simpler. I think people, our clients have their, a lot of wealth in homes, something that's a safe, hard mm-hmm. asset. But I think in general, it's, you know, we're traditional in the fixed yeah, income. Look, and Gold and, doesn't pay any dividend. There's no yield. It's, it's um, I don't know. We, you've we, had gold bugs, the gold people, for the longest time telling us that in a, in a debased kind of fiat right. currency, you know, you could turn on CNBC at 3 in the morning and the infomercials and everything about it. And then the whole wave of Bitcoin people who right. came out and right. said that none of these things were vindicated. I mean, gold has kind of held its value. But I, I'm asking you in a, in a kind of an investing 101 thing, yeah. what does gold represent? What does it, you know, we had Lauren Young of Reuters on the show last week, and she said on the eve of the financial crisis and the Wall Street meltdown that under the New York Fed, under the bedrock of New York, they were actually mold, moving gold bars around. Right. So the, the problem that we have with gold is if you're not buying the actual physical gold, which then becomes, again, it doesn't pay any dividend, there's no yield, and you're having to safeguard it somewhere, and it's not liquid. And you've got when you sell it, it's a it's an issue. 
The other option is to buy the gold ETF. Which don't track particularly which does not, well. It does not track well, and it is it has the same volatility as the stock market. So, you know, we like very um, liquid, very transparent, very low-cost, very easily tradable assets so that if we have to do something, we know exactly what we're doing, we know exactly what we're getting. Um, and for us, um, there are times when, you have, when, when gold, the gold ETF has been uh, in our portfolios. It currently is not. It's not. Talk to me about uh, energy. Cash is king, Cash Robin. is king. Cash is king. We have a parallel I talked about earlier, this parallel oil shock, which is kind of a construct, this, this internecine quabble within OPEC and the Saudis and the mm -hmm. Russians in a fight for market share. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman may have perceived that in this, uh, ahead of an economic downturn, which would have demand destruction akin to what we saw in 2008, 2009, oil went from $140 a barrel to, I don't know what it was, $30 or $40 a barrel. He came in and decided he wanted to flood the plane with Saudi oil. There were not going to be production cutbacks. And now this has caused a whole parallel. You know, John, you might speak to this uh, credit fear that you're going to see right. a, a spate of bankruptcies in the oil patch. And that might emanate out to other balance sheets. We're worried about regional banks. I know this gets into some esoterica, but this is a concern that this pandemic concern market did right. not need. Right. I think that it's, it's like it's not necessarily the one thing that you're thinking of. It's these other side shows that are going on. I think oil, the cost to produce oil here in, in the U.S. is $23 a barrel. So there, there's talk about maybe oil going down to $20 a barrel. That would That's already creating havoc in energy companies. And you're starting to see that getting rolled up to the banks. And I think there was before today, you started to see weakness in the, some of the regional banks that were big. But just to um, give you an idea, ExxonMobil Corporation, the largest oil company, at least in the United States, one of the largest on the planet, uh, the stock has been completely clobbered. Mm -hmm. It's yielding close to 10%. Right. Right. Now, that might by itself, a lot of people could say the dividend doesn't last. That doesn't tell you anything. How stress-tested is a portfolio like this if you take oil all the way down? I went back to 1998 after long-term capital management and the Russian currency crisis. We spoke about this earlier. And oil fell to about $10 a barrel. And not only you know, did they not capitulate on paying money out to people, but they went out and bought mobile. So you start to see some of that creative destruction. Um, I, I use the metaphor a lot, sipping from a fire hydrant, and that's really what this week has felt like. I can pay yes. attention just to the pandemic news and mm -hmm. being a father and being worried right. about my parents, parents. and my in-laws. I could pay attention to the credit markets, to what's going on in Wall Street as a fiduciary for my family, as a, as a, as a good friend and everything. And it's just... Um, it's just so confusing. It's overwhelming. Right. It is overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And I think a lot of people feel overwhelmed. It's interesting because most of the calls we're getting from clients, are they're not really asking. Uh, the only thing they're asking is, am I going to be okay? That's really all they want to know. And if we can, if we've done our jobs right, uh, and when we do financial plans for people, we model scenarios like this and the Monte Carlo analysis that we do, it includes markets like this and markets worse than this. So, you know, we, our relationships with clients are kind of the foundation is that plan and we have modeled this. And then if you understand, again, do they, when do they need money? How much do they need? And if you're raising that on profit and if you understand their risk tolerance, Thank God, when they're calling, we're able 
to say you're going to be okay because we've done the right things and we've asked the right questions and we've pushed when they've, you know, sometimes it's hard. Clients, when the markets are going up, everybody wants everything in the market. And you have to push back a little bit and say, is this really, I mean, let's let's model this out for you. If the market drops X percent, this is how much you're going to go down. Is that really tolerable to you? If it goes down X percent times two, is that tolerable? So it isn't just like asking people, what's your risk tolerance? I mean, you've got to really ask them stress in ways, tested. stress test it, and ask them in ways that they can feel it and, and get a sense of how they're really going to react. Um, you know, when people call me, I bring up that old REM bromide. <clears throat> Everybody hurts. Take comfort in your friends. You know, I would take comfort in my friends, the law, but they're telling me to avoid my friends. Right. It's a very lonely existence. I was like, will you call me? Will you Skype oh, with me? It is. And I think it's really lonely for those poor people in the nursing homes. Mm. They can't even have visitors. It's 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 heartbreaking in so many ways. But you do also get the feeling that this too shall pass. It will. Yes. Very much so. Look what Amazon announced yesterday. Did you, did you no. hear about that? They said they came out and said um, for Seattle, I don't know if it's just Seattle or the entire state of Washington, that they would free of charge deliver test kits to people's homes mm. so that they wouldn't have to go into hospitals and clinics and the doctors and nurses wouldn't have to put on wow. full hazmats or get contaminated. And then we start losing our doctors and nurses because they've been exposed. So like. That's what I think of as America is these companies, not the government, because the government has not done such a great job, but these companies thinking of ways that they can step into this and help. And I thought that was just fabulous. I just thought that's a smart idea. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, the founder of Amazon, is the richest man on the planet. Uh, before all this, he had a net worth of something like $130 billion. He owns the Washington Post, and they also own Whole Foods. I was at Whole Foods today, and uh, they're just being overrun with this you know, prime grocery delivery mm -hmm. service if people right. don't want to leave the house. Um, you're, you're starting really to see, if you just ask around, uh, the, 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 the externalities, the bizarre little things going on. I mean, the extent of, uh, you know, Uber drivers, Uber, right. Uber Eats, McDonald's deliveries, the things that are going on at Kroger. And then you also think behind this, um, this is ultimately going to be vindication. It sounds a little mercenary for those people out there who have been hyper liquid, who have been husbanding cash. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, right. for the longest time, they say, you guys are sitting on too much cash. How are you going to put the cash to use? And you remember an environment like this when Goldman Sachs needed money, you know, when you become like the lender of only resort, mm -hmm. you can kind of dictate your terms out That's there. That's right. So talk to me about cash positions and encouraging people to be in cash and having dry powder for an occasion like this. Right. So we have been buyers in this, in our strategy, and it does present opportunities. But I think even beyond that, again, it's it's understanding based on everybody's specific situation, how much should even be in the market or be in cash or and or bonds. Unfortunately, like I said, with interest rates, we've had a, we've had pretty substantial bond positions with our clients because we do the risk work and a lot of people don't belong in 60, 70, 80 percent in the market. They need to have much less than that. Um, 
and it's been it's 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 been a, it's weighted down our portfolio returns for sure over the last several years. But the vindication is now, of course. Again, when right. you have the ballast, yeah. when you have it saved. So if you're if you're only earning a couple percent, but at least you're not down 15, 20, 30 percent. But that's what it's there for. So if you have if you're doing proper rebalancing, you're going to be able as your stock assets decrease in value because of the decline and you have pretty substantial portion in bonds, you're able to use those bonds to buy into the stock market to get you back into balance. It's like rotating the crops. Exactly. And so it's our whole philosophy, as you know, is buy lower, sell higher and have logical, decisive triggers to do that. And that's what we do. What is this uh, famous Solomon and Ludwin black box telling you? It's like Hal... The HAL 2000 <laughs> in your bank vault, right? Well, this we is... have no crystal ball. You know right. that, we have, Robin. We've been we've been buying, and I mean, I think that's that's probably the the one takeaway is we have been buying pretty um, aggressively in some of our uh, strategies. So do you yes. have any? Do you have any uh, anecdotal evidence of of maybe the validation of the robo advisor portfolios? We saw Robinhood somehow shut down and freeze in this environment, but. Uh, for those people, especially the younger, the millennials, the liquid millennials who've gone out and uh, theoretically taken human emotion out of the equation, has that so far been validated? I mean, we do know that the megatrend behind this was um, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the uh, financial crisis and everything that happened afterwards was Vanguard that became a $5 trillion right. company. As people said, I'm not going to try to beat the market anymore. I just want to be the market right. and control low costs. Which is smart. Costs. Which right. is smart. I, I, we think. Yeah. I mean, that we use all low-cost, highly liquid, tax-efficient ETFs, exchange-traded funds, index funds. Most managers can't beat the index, so why not just buy the index? Um but I do think that robo-advisors for young people is a really good thing. I, I don't find anything wrong at all with that. I think as you start to you, you start to, to amass a little more wealth and um, you start tr- needing to connect the dots and have a plan and understand cash flow and taxes and you know, then you know the, the robo-advisor might not be your best bet. But I think for people starting out or pe- people trying to save, and I think it's a great idea. You know, we have a good quote from one of my favorite authors, uh, Ben Carlson of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He now writes for Fortune. Uh, S&P 500 total returns uh, just in the past two days and this week, down 12%. From the highs, down 25%. That's a bear market. Yep. This year, down 21%. Since the end of 2018, up 3%. Over the past three years, up 13%. Over the past five years, up 37%. Over the past 10 years, up 170%. That's right. And it's striking, you know, going back to your market baptism, Dalal, Mm -hmm. the crash of 87, if you try to spot it on a chart for as traumatic as it was, you you can't find it. Right. It's very hard to You can certainly find the videos on YouTube. Right. And, you know. Oh, I see Teledyne, Anacott Steel, you know, it's just falling off the charts. Let me go back to my quote on. No, I'm making it sound like some 1920s stock jockey. But, but it was kind of like that. Yeah. And yeah. as other people were telling me, you know, some old bond vigilantes were telling me like, son, you know, the worst thing we saw before this was a savings and loan crisis. Right. And that was traumatic that with was banks really failing traumatic. and everything until 2008 traumatic. Right. And you get the impression that this is a whole new frontier of trauma, but that we're going to have to get our heads around it nevertheless. 
Yes, it's it's just I I think to try to figure out all the little um, gyrations of what could happen and when it's going to happen is going to be it's just I think it's impossible. I really do. I I think we can um, pretend we all know how low this is going to go and how long it's going to last, but I don't think anybody knows. And I think what we have to do is uh, just really focus on uh, taking care of ourselves from a health standpoint and not falling prey to fear and panic from a financial standpoint. Even in the worst of the uh, 2008, and as long as that lasted and how devastating that was, we recovered and went into one of the biggest bull markets in history. And I just remember people back then saying, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. People I really respected saying there's no way we're going to get out of this. Oh, people that were selling at the bottom because they thought it was going to go to zero. A really respected uh, bond manager, very widely quoted across Wall Street. I'm, I'm profiling him and pulls me aside and he says, I told my wife to go to as many bank accounts as possible and take out $10,000 cash and just hide it under mattresses. Wow. And that was an indication to me. Um, I just want to get a sense for, you know, when we look ahead now, um, it's almost afterthought at this point that there is going to be a recession. There is going to be a, 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 a shadow shockwave to this. And what are clients asking about this? How do you prepare people for it? What do recessions necessarily tell you about market returns? You know, there's a lag and a lead. Right. Well, it's. I think the um, being calm and having a plan. I think that's where we are standing. So I think that we've been conveying that message to our clients. That I mean, this is this is a blip. Like you just talked about in 1987. You come back at 2008. In the long time, this is just going to be a blip. And so I think what we do. Uh, what we do from this point forward is really not that different than what we've always done. We're going right. to invest. We're going to allocate. We're going to reach out what robo-advisors can't do. We're going to reach out and make contact with our clients, make sure they're okay, make sure that all the things that we talked about from asset allocation to their risk profile, all those things make sense. We're going to check their financial plan. We're going to make sure they have plenty of cash to survive. Really, we don't see this as a time that we have to change. We have the plan in place, and we're going to implement that plan. Hmm. Are people talking to you about hard assets such as toilet paper? I'm serious <laughs> at this point. No, but it, you, you have to pay attention to it. You go to a Costco. You go to a Kroger. It's amazing. I, I mean, I try to order a ton of things online and got an email back saying they can't fulfill anything. What happens to the global supply chain? I mean, what happens to China? If you believe the stats that China's passed the worst of this, that they could fire up the factories, I mean, heck, they really need it. At this point, what happens to an Apple? Even if you have a desire to pay $1,000 for an iPhone, you can't make it without China. Right. China's going to be back. They're up, I think, 91% is what I heard some quote that they're up to 91% manufacturing again. You're starting to see the evidence of pollution, you know, of the coal outputs. You're looking at pollution. Tra- yeah, you're looking at the um, transportation, the way people are moving. It looks like that is starting to ramp up. That supply chain is going to be back and it's going to be fully functional, we would think. Um, the one thing that is also with that supply chain is that this, the back end of that has been that payment chain. And that's where there's a – perhaps that's where some of this credit dislocation has taken place in that the supply providers along the chain have actually needed funds and dollars to, to function. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a two wave that we're probably seeing is first of all the supply chain getting built out and resu- resuming. And then the back end is like what other kinds of things are we seeing that are the second 
order of dislocation. Uh, to quote Ben Carlson again, um, you know, drawdowns are the norm in the stock market. It's effectively the cost of, of admission, you know, risk versus reward. So the S&P 500 intra-year peak to trough drawdowns, 1950 to 2019, uh, greater than 20%, which is what we're experiencing right now, 16% of those years have experienced that. Uh, 15 to 20%, again, 16% of that. More run-of-the-mill 10 to 15%, 21% of the time. For sure. And 5 to 10%, 39% of the time. So roughly 53% of all calendar years for the S&P 500 since 1950 have experienced a double-digit correction. And more than 91% of the time, there was at least a 5% correction or worse. So you, it's unbelievable. Since 1928, the S&P 500 has hit new all-time highs in roughly 5% of trading sessions. If we invert this number, that means 95% of the time investors are in a state of drawdown. I know that's a lot. But volatility is the cost of But you know, for most of the bull market that we've just finished, there was not a lot of volatility and there were not a lot of drawdowns, Right. But everybody for the majority of this bull market is saying 2008, 2009. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. How is that not pungent in anyone's memory? A 57% drawdown. Again, this is where you had your baptism by fire right? in that, in that terrible bear market and urging people to keep the faith. Right. But people's memories are not that long. Apparently people's it's 11 years, I think. Yeah. People's memories are very short and... As is typical with the average investor, they wait too long to get in, and they buy the most at the top, and they get scared, and they sell pretty darn near the lows. That, by looking statistically at mutual fund inflows and outflows, that's the experience of the typical investor, and that's what we are trying to avoid um, at all costs. That, that is a recipe for disaster, financial disaster. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Dalal Solomon. Uh, she is CEO and founder of Solomon & Ludwin, the financial advisory um, highly ranked in Barron's Forbes and the FT. It totes about a billion under management. She's joined here in studio with portfolio manager John Harper. Um, you know, with uh, 10 minutes or so that we have left, I'd love to, uh, you know, if you can, and this is a really, you know, this fog of war and crisis and panic and everything, it's very hard. But if we are looking into our crystal ball five years or 10 years hence, what are we going to be saying about this moment? Um, so many things going on. We, we didn't even discuss the election, which was front and center before right. any of this stuff happened. And you're in the middle of a primary season and there's going to be a, a presidential election in November. There are now concerns over the Senate and, and everything else. Uh, once a lot of these headlines kind of subside, what are we going to look back at this period as? What are we going to be saying? What are we going to wish we had thought or did? I know that's mm. perilously hard to do. All right. Well, I'm going to say what I think. It's probably not the best thing, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think we're going to look at this time period as a failure in government. I think we're going to look back and be... We had um, months to figure this out and to get our act together, and we've had a total miscommunication, mistrust, and failure of government. And I think for the United States, that's that's um, I think that's what we're going to remember. And I think a lot of this fear, a lot of the panic, could have been avoided had we pre prepared in a timely manner 
taken steps that we could have taken well in advance of this and communicated clearly uh, with clear action plans, clear thoughts, clear expectations. And I think for me, I think that's been that's been my big takeaway is that this has been this has been such a failure. Is it dissonant to you that we're still the greenback is still the reserve currency of choice around the world, or people pile into U.S. Treasuries when things go wrong? That American exceptionalism has that been dinged? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's getting dinged. Uh, I think that's. Um, I mean, after all, we had our credit rating downgraded. What was it in twenty eleven? And it was just a gangbusters right. credit market coming out of that. Right. Everybody warned us about bond vigilantes, about a hell to pay, about zero interest rate policy and easing, and there was going to be a shock coming out of this. I think the reason it's not dinged more is because our economy going into this was is still was still very strong. Our businesses were strong. Our balance sheets were relatively good. Earnings were decent. Growth was there. Unemployment was low. So, I mean, not for the gut, not. Not to take away from how bad I think the government has reacted to this pandemic, but I do think that the economy has helped us stay, uh, ha- give us the strength that we need for, as far as the dollar. It's already being called Black Thursday, the global stock market crash on March 12, 2020 during the Wall Street crash of 2020. I guess it's going to be coined at some point, the crash of 2020, the panic of 2020, Um it was it was certainly fast and whiplashing. I know Delal, you experienced this happening in in two days in 1987. Right. And in in 2008, it happened over a lurid several months of Lehman Brothers collapsing. I mean, it took from about what was it September to March. What is it about the second week of March? I don't know. You know, we in, have to in, remember this for next. Yeah. Time. <laughs> in 2000, the Nasdaq, the tech market, peaked in March 10th of 2000. Right. The stock market hit its fateful uh, intergenerational, low, you know, generational low on March 9th of 2009. Uh, the S&P 500 ominously flashed 666. Right. And now everybody's talking about the week of March 10th, March 12th, 2020 as the great panic of 2020. It's true. But I do think John's analogy of comparing this to 9-11 is probably a good one because it was the same kind of feeling of this has never happened before. How are the markets going to react? What What are our safety? Are we going to get attacked again. It does, I think that's right. a, a really good analogy. And, you and, know, fr- and from that, we, we institute, I mean, there was changes that took place societally. We didn't shut down our borders. Or we, we didn't do anything too crazy. I think what's going to happen, and going back to your question about what I would say in five years, I hope that we're approaching all-time highs. <laughs> it's a hope. I said that, right? Um, I think that we will have either identified what to do in the next crisis whether and what not to do in the next crisis. I think those are two things that kind of follow on what Dalal was saying about leadership. Um, I think there's a lot that I think we're going to come out of this in five years, 10 years that I'm going to be thinking that we're stronger from that. So that's, I think that we're going to come out of this better. Um, that's a hope and what I'm going to think that five years from now, I'm going to say it was painful, but we're better for it. Dalal, you know, I passed my Series 7 barely 22 years ago when Russia was failing and LTCM and everything in 1998. That was the first time I heard what they used to call moral hazard under the Alan Greenspan Federal Reserve, that there has to be a burlesque between markets and central bankers. If markets always think that they're going to get all of it, get to see all of it, 
there's going to be all sorts of risk taking. And then we saw that like crazy in 99 with the stock market bubble. We saw it again with the real estate uh, bubble and uh, mm -hmm. subprime crash. And uh, very candidly, you know, I'm worried. A lot of people are worried. If you look at the 20 years going back to the year 2000, I don't know. I'm not sure if it was a majority. At least half of those years have been under emergency interest rate policy. There seems to be like there's going to be a big generational tab to pay for this. Yeah, we don't. That doesn't happen for free. You you can't just do all that uh, stimulus and create that much of a debt and deficit and just think that it's all going to be okay. And it's what's been so interesting to me, and I think we talked about it last time I was on your show, is that still nobody talks about the deficit. Nobody. Well, the deficit's out the window now if you're talking about what do we need to have a payroll tax cut, the Fed to inject $1.5 in bid to prevent, quote, unusual disruptions in markets. We're taking, you know, Fed does an emergency half-point cut intermeeting and is going to come out again and probably take rates to zero. Even past that, they were conjuring up trillions of dollars right. to go and buy assets. This is not good. <laughs> it seems like this it's is that, not good. It's kicked from the consumer back pre-real estate to the banks and the bailout. It seems like there's somebody else has been – the can has been kicked down the road and now it's probably left to the central banks that we're left with. Dalal, what is my vindication? <laughs> what is my vindication if for 15 years I've been saving money? I resisted the siren calls of subprime, the FANG stocks, investing in Facebook and all these you know trillion-dollar – things and, and Casper and mattress companies and everything. I dutifully sent money to the bank and, and ate unusually low interest rates. What is my vindication? What is my validation right now? It seems like people who took risks were disproportionately rewarded. People who went and speculated in real estate, who flipped homes, who bought right. overpriced unless they, equities. Unless they got caught. Well, even them, right. a lot of them right now are getting to refinance under this thing. But what about the saver? What about the person? I'm, I'm asking you this. And you know the it questions does, get harder does, and harder. No, I, I hear what, what you're saying. What is my validation it for does, being a good saver? It, the Fed told me, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, with the, you know, in her past life as a consumer protection guru, said that, uh, you know, we should save. We should save coming out of this crisis. And if I did now, well, what, what is oh, my only validation, vindication, is that I can go and buy cheaper stocks at this point? Well, here's the thing, though, Robin. Just like not, most people probably shouldn't be 100% in the stock market, most people shouldn't be 100% in cash or bonds or CDs or money markets. So it's finding that right mix so that when the markets are going up, you're participating, but when they're going down, you're not getting killed. So – what we try to focus on is not beating things, but accomplishing things. Let's figure – everyone has their own personal benchmark. What are you trying to do with your money? If we can do that, then you're winning, whether you're 50% stocks or 20% stocks or 80% stocks. We'll figure that out. But it's more about um, achieving things as opposed to beating things, and that's when you really win. It seems like cold comfort at this point. I mean, coming off of the high of this market and the feeling that everything worked and everything could get funded. I mean, WeWork just a few months ago seems like it was going to have a blockbuster IPO built on nothing. And you know how quickly that all disappeared. Right. Well, you, you, there are things you can't control. You can't control Fed policy, central banks. You can't control 
taxes. You can't. There's so many things you can't control. The only thing you can control is your own ability to meet your how much you save, how much you spend, having making smart decisions to invest money in a way that's going to be comfortable, not just in a bull market, but also in a bear market. Understand your cash flows. Know where your money's coming from. These are all things we can control. And I shouldn't stay up at night thinking that all these assets are distorted, it, that the Fed have, is interfering. That, you can think about mm-hmm. it, but what is that going to get you? It's not going to change anything. Control the things you can control. Dr. Solomon, I hear you, <laughs> and you're going to get a fat copay out of this. But I can't control things. I stare at the ceiling at night thinking at some point inflation is going to rear its head. Talk about crying wolf. People have been saying that the hell to pay for deficits for years is going to be inflation. Inflation has been non-existent. Non-existent. We've been clobbering savers. Every time we want to normalize interest rates, you know, again, we were just recently at full employment and an all-time high stock market, and we had interest rates well right. below where they were before right. the financial and you, crisis. And, and how I, are we ever going to take them right. back and after this? And if I were making those decisions, I wouldn't have cut interest rates. But we, I'm not making those decisions. We have to play the hands that were dealt, but we have to play them intelligently with a full understanding of what it is we are trying to accomplish and what, how much risk we can take and, and what we need from our portfolio. That's all we can do. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's been horribly sad for especially the elderly population who get their money from, they live off interest from their CDs or their bonds and they've been forced to put a lot of their money at risk because they can't live off that. That's a tough spot to be in. It's been, market's been very challenging. Even though it's been a great bull market for 11 years, it's been challenging. Delaw Solomon and John Harper of Solomon and Ludwin. Uh, I can't thank you enough. You guys are built for this, right? Again, you were forged in this type of fire and you've been telling clients for years that this is going to happen now. I, I cannot thank you enough for agreeing to do this after a hellacious day in the markets when your voicemail boxes are full, when you're exhausted. You you candidly, wonderfully brought your portable alpha to to full disclosure when you could be doing more profitable things. You are one of our favorite people, and we love being here. You're always welcome on this show. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 on the trusty NPR One app and on Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 